Story 7. The Wanderer. My devout friend, the teacher, and I could not resist our desire to start on our journey, and before doing so, to look in and say a last goodbye to you and ask for your prayers. The teacher. Yes, our intimacy with you has meant a great deal to us, and so have the salutary conversations on spiritual things which we have enjoyed at your house in company with your friends. We shall keep the memory of all this in our hearts as a pledge of fellowship and Christian love in that distant land to which we are hastening. The Elder, thank you for remembering me, and, by the way, how opportune your arrival is. There are two travelers stopping with me, a Moldavian monk and a hermit who has lived in silence for twenty-five years in a forest. They want to see you. I will call them at once. Here they are. The Wanderer. Ah, how blessed life of solitude is, and how suitable for bringing the soul into unbroken union with God. The silent forest is like a garden of Eden, in which the delightful tree of life grows in the prayerful heart of the recluse. If I had something to live on, nothing, I think, would keep me from the life of a hermit. The Teacher. Everything seems particularly desirable to us from a distance. But we all find out by experience that every place, though it may have its advantages, has its drawbacks too. Of course, if one is melancholy by temperament and inclined to silence, then a solitary life is a comfort. But what a lot of dangers lie along that road. The history of the ascetic life provides many instances to show that numbers of recluses and hermits, having entirely deprived themselves of human society, have fallen into self-deception and profound seductions. The Hermit I am surprised at how often one hears it said in Russia, not only in religious houses, but even among God-fearing layfolk, that many who desire the hermit life or exercise in the practice of interior prayer are held back from following up this inclination by the fear that seductions will ruin them. Insisting on this, they bring forward instances of the conclusion their minds have arrived at as a reason alike for avoiding the interior life themselves and for keeping other people from it also. To my mind, this arises from two causes, either from failure to understand the task and lack of spiritual enlightenment or from their own indifference to contemplative achievement and jealousy lest others who are at a low level in comparison with themselves should outdistance them in this higher knowledge. It is a great pity that those who hold this conviction don't investigate the teaching of the Holy Fathers on the matter, for they very decidedly teach that one ought neither to fear nor doubt when one calls upon God. If certain of them have indeed fallen into self-deception and fanaticism, that was the result of pride, of not having a director and of taking appearances and imagination for reality. Should such a time of testing occur, they continue, it would lead to experience and a crown of glory, for the help of God comes swiftly to protect when such a thing is permitted. Be courageous. I am with you. Fear not, says Christ. And it follows from this that to feel fear and alarm at the interior life on the pretext of the risk of self-deception is a vain thing. For humble consciousness of one's sins, openness of soul with one's director, and formlessness in prayer are a strong and safe defense against those tempting illusions of which many feel so great a fear 
and, therefore, don't embark upon activity of the mind. Incidentally, these very people find themselves exposed to temptation, as the wise words of Fiendesarosus the Sinite tell us. He says, There are many monks who don't understand the illusion of their own minds, which they suffer at the hands of demons, that is to say, they give themselves diligently to only one form of activity, outward good works, whereas of the mind, that is, of inward contemplation, they have little care, since they are unenlightened and ignorant about this, even if they hear of others that grace works inwardly within them. Through jealousy they regard it as self-deception, St. Gregory the Sinite declares. The teacher, allow me to ask you a question. Of course, the consciousness of one's sins is proper for everyone who pays any attention to himself. But how does one proceed when no director is available to guide one in the way of the interior life from his own experience, and when one has opened one's heart to him, to impart to one correct and trustworthy knowledge about the spiritual life? In that case, no doubt, it would be better not to attempt contemplation, rather than try it on one's own without a guide. Further, for my part, I don't readily understand how, if one puts oneself in the presence of God, it is possible to observe complete formlessness. It is not natural, for our soul or our mind can present nothing to the imagination without form, in absolute formlessness. And why, indeed, when the mind is steeped in God, should we not present to the imagination Christ, or the Holy Trinity, and so on? The Hermit the guidance of a director or elder who is experienced and knowledgeable in spiritual things, to whom one can open one's heart every day without hindrance, with confidence and advantage, and tell one's thoughts and what one has met with on the path of interior schooling, is the chief condition for the practice of prayer of the heart by one who has entered upon the life of silence. Yet, in cases where it is impossible to find such a one, the same holy fathers who prescribe this make an exception. Nikiforos, the monk, gives clear instructions about it. Thus, during the practice of inward activity of the heart, a genuine and well-informed director is required. If such a one is not at hand, then you must diligently search for one. If you don't find him, then, calling contritely upon God for help, draw instruction and guidance from the teaching of the holy fathers, and verify it from the word of God set forth in the Holy Scriptures. Here one must also take into consideration the fact that the seeker of good will and zeal can obtain something useful in the way of instruction from ordinary people also. For the Holy Fathers assure us likewise that if with faith and right intention one questions even a Saracen, he can speak words of value to us. If, on the other hand, one asks for instruction from a prophet, without faith and a righteous purpose, then even he will not satisfy us. We see an instance of this in the case of Macarius the Great of Egypt, to whom on one occasion a simple villager gave an explanation which put an end to the distress which he was experiencing. As regards formlessness, that is, not using the imagination and not accepting any sort of vision during contemplation, whether of light, or of an angel, or of Christ, or any saint, and turning aside from all dreaming, this, of course, is enjoyed by experienced holy fathers for this reason, that the power of the imagination may easily incarnate 
or, so to speak, give life to the representations of the mind, and thus the inexperienced might readily be attracted by these figments, take them as visions of grace, and fall into self-deception, in spite of the fact that Holy Scripture says that Satan himself may assume the form of an angel or light, and that the mind can naturally and easily be in a state of a formlessness and keep so, even while recollecting the presence of God, can be seen from the fact that the power of imagination can perceptibly present a thing in formlessness and maintain its hold upon such a presentation. Thus, for example, the representation of our souls, of the air, warmth, or cold. When you are cold, you can have a lively idea of warmth in your mind, though warmth has no shape, is not an object of sight, and is not measured by the physical feeling of one who finds himself in the cold. In the same way, also the presence of the spiritual and incomprehensible being of God may be present to the mind and recognized in the heart in absolute formlessness. The Wanderer During my travelings I have come across people, devout people, who were seeking salvation, who have told me that they were afraid to have anything to do with the interior life, and denounced it as a mere illusion. To several of them, I read out of Philokalia the teaching of St. Gregory the Sinite with some prophet. He says that the action of the heart can't be an illusion, as that of the mind can. For if the enemy desired to turn the warmth of the heart into his own uncontrolled fire, or to change the gladness of the heart into the dull pleasures of the senses, still time, experience, and the feeling itself would expose his craftiness and cunning, even for those who are not very learned. I have also met other people who, most unhappily, after knowing the way of silence and prayer of the heart, have on meeting some obstacle or sinful weakness, gave way to depression and given up the inward activity of the heart which they had known. The teacher. Yes, and that is very natural. I have experienced the same thing at times on occasions when I have lapsed from the interior frame of mind or done something wrong. For since inward prayer of the heart is a holy thing, and union with God, is it not unseemly and a thing not to be dared to bring a holy thing into a sinful heart, without having first purified it by silent contrite penitence, and proper preparation for communion with God? It is better to be dumb before God, than to offer him thoughtless words out of a heart that is in darkness and distraction. The monk, it is a great pity that you think like that. That is despondency, which is the worst of all sins and constitutes the principal weapon of the world of darkness against us. The teaching of our experienced holy fathers about this is quite different. Nicetus Stethetus says that if you have fallen and sunk down, even into the depths of hellish evil, even then you are not to despair, but to turn quickly to God, and he will speedily raise up your fallen heart and give you more strength than you had before. So, after every fall and sinful wounding of the heart, the thing to do is immediately to place it in the presence of God for healing and cleansing. Just as things that have become infected, if they are exposed for some time to the power of the sun's rays, lose the sharpness and strength of their infection. Many spiritual writers speak positively about this inner conflict with the enemies of salvation, our passions. If you receive wounds a thousand times, 
Still, you should by no means give up the life-giving action, that is to say, calling upon Christ who is present in our hearts. Our actions not only ought not to turn us away from walking in the presence of God and from inward prayer, and so produce disquiet, depression, and sadness in us, but rather further our swift turning to God. The infant who is led by its mother when it begins to walk turns quickly to her and holds on to her firmly when it stumbles. The Hermit I look at it in this way, that the spirit of despondency and agitating and doubting thoughts are aroused most easily by the distraction of the mind and failure to guard the silent resort of one's inner self. The ancient fathers in their divine wisdom won the victory over despondency and received inward light and strength through hope in God, through peaceful silence and solitude, and they have given us wise and useful counsel. Sit silently in your cell, and it will teach you everything. The Teacher I have such confidence in you that I listen very gladly to your critical analysis of my thoughts about the silence which you praise so highly and the benefits of the solitary life, which hermits so love to lead. Well, this is what I think. Since all people, by the law of nature ordained by the Creator, are placed in necessary dependence upon one another, and, therefore, are bound to help one another in life, to labor for one another, and to be of service to one another, this sociability makes for the well-being of the human race and shows love for one's neighbor. But the silent hermit who has withdrawn from human society, in what way can he, in his inactivity, be of service to his neighbor, and what contribution can he make to the well-being of human society? He completely destroys in himself that law of the Creator, which concerns union and love of one's kind and beneficent influence upon the brotherhood. The Hermit Since this view of yours about silence is incorrect, the conclusion you draw from it will not hold good. Let us consider it in detail. 1. The man who lives in silent solitude is not only living in a state of inactivity and idleness, he is in the highest degree active, even more than the one who takes part in the life of society. He untiringly acts according to his highest rational nature. He is on guard. He ponders. He keeps his eye upon the state and progress of his moral existence. This is the true purpose of silence, and in the measure that this minister to his own improvement, it benefits others for whom undistracted submergence within themselves for the development of the moral life is impossible. For he who watches in silence, by communicating his inward experiences, either by word, in exceptional cases, or by committing them to write, promotes the spiritual advantage and the salvation of his brethren, and he does more and that of a higher kind than the private benefactor, because the private emotional charities of people in the world are always limited by the small number of benefits conferred, whereas he who confers benefits by morally attaining to convincing and testing means of perfecting the spiritual life, becomes a benefactor of a whole people's. His experience and teaching pass on from generation to generation, as we see ourselves, and of which we avail ourselves, from ancient times to this day. And this in no sense differs from Christian love. It even surpasses it in its results. 2. 
the beneficent and most useful influence of the man who observes silence upon his neighbors is not only shown in the communication of his instructive observations upon the interior life, benefits the attentive layman by leading him to self-knowledge and arousing in him the feeling of reverence. The man who lives in the world, hearing of the devout recluse, or going past the door of his hermitage, feels an impulse to the devout life, has recalled to his mind what man can be upon earth, that it is possible for man to get back to that primitive contemplative state in which he issued from the hands of his creator. The silent recluse teaches by his very silence, and by his very life he benefits, edifies, and persuades to the search for God. 3. This benefit springs from genuine silence, which is illuminated and sanctified by the light of grace. But if the silent one did not have these gifts of grace, which make him a light to the world, even if he should have embarked upon the way of silence with the purpose of hiding himself from the society of his kind, as the result of sloth and indifference, even then he would confer a great benefit upon the community in which he lives, just as the gardener cuts off dry and barren branches, and clears away the weeds, so that the growth of the best and most useful may be unimpeded. And this is a great deal. It is of general benefit that the silent one, by his seclusion, removes the temptations which would inevitably arise from his unedifying life among people and be injurious to the morals of his neighbors. On the subject of the importance of silence, St. Isaac the Syrian exclaims as follows, When on one side we place all the action of this life and on the other, silence, we find that it weighs down the scales. Don't place those who perform signs and wonders in the world on a level with those who keep silence with knowledge. Love the inactivity of silence more than the satiety of greedy ones in the world and the turning of many people to God. It is better for you to cut yourself free from the bonds of sin than to liberate slaves from their servitude. Even the most elementary sages have recognized the value of silence. The philosophical school of the Neoplatonists, which embraced many adherents under the guidance of the philosopher Plotinus, developed to a high degree the inner contemplative life, which is attained most especially in silence. One spiritual writer said that if the state was developed to the highest degree of education and morals, yet even then, it would still be necessary to provide people for contemplation, in addition to the general activities of citizens. In order to preserve the spirit of truth, and having received it from all the centuries that are past, to keep it for the generations to come, and hand it on to posterity. Such people in the church are hermits, recluses, and anchorites. The Wanderer I think that no one has so truly valued the excellence of silence as St. John of the latter. Silence, he says, is the mother of prayer, a return from the captivity of sin unconscious success in virtue, a continuous ascension to heaven. Yes, and Christ himself, in order to show us the advantage and necessity of silent seclusion, often left his public preaching and went into silent places for prayer and quietude. The silent contemplatives are like pillars supporting the devotion of the church by their secret continuous prayer. Even in the distant past, one sees that many devout layfolk and even kings and their courtiers, went to visit hermits and men who kept silence in order to ask them to pray for their strengthening and salvation. 
Thus the silent recluse, too, can serve his neighbor and act to the advantage and the happiness of society by his secluded prayer. The Teacher Now, there again, that is a thought which I don't very easily understand. It is a general custom among all of us Christians to ask for each other's prayers, to want another to pray for me, and to have special confidence in a member of the church. Is not this simply a demand for self-love? Is it not that we have only caught the habit of saying what we have heard others say, as a sort of fancy of the mind, without any serious consideration? Does God require human intercession, since he foresees everything, and acts according to his all-blessed providence, and not according to our desire, knowing and settling everything before our petition is made, as the Holy Gospel says? Can the prayer of many people really be any stronger to overcome his decisions than the prayer of one person? In that case, God would be a respecter of persons. Can the prayer of another person really save me when everybody is commended or put to shame on the ground of his own actions? And, therefore, the request for the prayers of another person is to my mind merely a pious expression of spiritual courtesy, which shows signs of humility and a desire to please by referring one another. And that is all. The monk. If one takes only outward considerations into account, and with an elementary philosophy, it might be put in that way. But the spiritual reason, blessed by the light of religion and trained by the experiences of the interior life, goes a good deal deeper, contemplates more clearly, and in a mystery reveals something entirely different from what you have put forward. So that we may understand this more quickly and clearly, let us take an example and then verify the truth of it from the word of God. Let us say that a pupil came to a certain teacher for instruction, his feeble capacities and, what is more, his idleness and lack of concentration prevented him from attaining any success in his studies, and they put him in the category of the idle and unsuccessful. Feeling sad at this, he did not know what to do, nor how to contend with his deficiencies. Then he met another pupil, a classmate of his, who was abler than he, more diligent and successful, and he explained his trouble to him. The other took an interest in him and invited him to work with him. Let us work together, he said, and we shall be keener, more cheerful, and, therefore, more successful. And so they began to study together, each sharing with the others what he understood. The subject of their study was the same. And what followed after several days? The indifferent one became diligent. He came to like his work. His carelessness was changed to ardor and intelligence which had a beneficial effect upon his character and morals also. And the intelligent one in his turn became more able and industrious. In the effect they had upon one another, they arrived at a common advantage. And this is very natural, for man is born in the society of people. He develops his rational understanding through people, habits of life, training, emotions, the action of the will in a word, everything he receives from the example of his kind. And, therefore, as the life of men consists of the closest relations and the strongest influences of one upon another, he who lives among a certain sort of people becomes accustomed to that kind of habit, behavior, and morals. Consequently, the cool become enthusiastic, the stupid become sharp, the idle is aroused to activity by a lively interest in their fellow men, 
spirit can give itself to spirit and act beneficially upon another and attract another to prayer, to attention. It can encourage him in despondency, turn him from vice, and arouse him to holy action. And so, by helping each other, they can become more devout, more energetic spiritually, more reverent. There you have the secret of prayer for others, which explains the devout custom on the part of Christian people of praying for one another and asking for the prayers of the brethren. And from this one can see that it is not that God is pleased, as the great ones of this world are, by a great many petitions and intercessions, but that the very spirit and power of prayer cleanses and arouses the soul for whom the prayer is offered, and presents it ready for union with God. If mutual prayer by those who are living upon earth is so beneficial, then, in the same way, we may infer that prayer for the departed also is mutually beneficial because of the very close link that exists between the heavenly world and this. In this way, souls of the church militant can be drawn into union with souls of the church triumphant, or, what is the same thing, the living with the dead. All that I have said is psychological reasoning, but if we open Holy Scripture, we can verify the truth of it. 1. Christ says to the Apostle Peter, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fails not. There you see that the power of Christ's prayer strengthens the spirit of St. Peter and encourages him when his faith is tested. 2. When the Apostle Peter was kept in prison, prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Here we have revealed the help which brotherly prayer gives in the troubled circumstances of life. 3. But the clearest precept about prayer for others is put by the holy Apostle James in this way. Confess your sins one to another, and pray for one another. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availed much. Here is definite confirmation of the psychological argument above. And what are we to say of the example of the holy apostle Paul, which is given to us as the pattern of prayer for one another? One writer observes that this example of the holy apostle Paul should teach us how necessary prayer for one another is, when so holy and strong a supporter acknowledges his own need of this spiritual help. In the epistle to the Hebrews, he words his request in this way, Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. Hebrews 8, 18. When we take note of this, how unreasonable it seems to rely upon our own prayers and successes only. When a man so holy, so full of grace, in his humility ask for the prayers of his neighbors, the Hebrews, to be joined to his own. Therefore, in humility, simplicity, and unity of love, we should not reject or disdain the help of the prayers of even the feeblest of believers when the clear-sighted spirit of the Apostle Paul felt no hesitation about it. He asked for the prayers of all in general, knowing that the power of God is made perfect in weakness. Consequently, it can at times be made perfect in those who seem able to pray but feebly. Feeling the force of this example, we notice further that prayer one for another strengthens that unity in Christian love, which is commanded by God, witnesses to humility in the spirit of him who makes the request, and, so to speak, attracts the spirit of him who prays. Mutual intercession is stimulated in this way. The Teacher 
Your analysis and your proofs are admirable and exact, but it would be interesting to hear from you the actual method and form of prayer for others. For I think that if the fruitfulness and attractive power of prayer depend upon a living interest in our neighbors, and conspicuously upon the constant influence of the spirit of him who prays upon the spirit of him who asked for prayer, such a state of soul might draw one away from the uninterrupted sense of the invisible presence of God, and the outpouring of one's soul before God in one's own needs. And if one brings one's neighbor to mind, just once or twice in the day, with sympathy for him, asking the help of God for him, would that not be enough for the attracting and strengthening of his soul? To put it briefly, I should like to know exactly how to pray for others. The Monk The prayer which is offered to God for anything whatever ought not and can't take us away from the sense of the presence of God. For if it is an offering made to God, then, of course, it must be in his presence. So far as the method of praying for others is concerned, it must be noted that the power of this sort of prayer consists in true Christian sympathy with one's neighbor, and it has an influence upon his soul according to the extent of that sympathy. Therefore, when one happens to remember him, one's neighbor, or at the same time, or at the time appointed for doing so, it is well to bring a mental view of him into the presence of God, and to offer prayer in the following form. Most merciful God, thy will be done, which will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Save and help thy servant N. Take this desire of mine as a cry of love which thou hast commanded. Commonly you will repeat those words when your soul feels moved to do so, or you might tell your beads with this prayer. I have found from experience how beneficially such a prayer acts upon him for whom it is offered. The Teacher Your views and arguments and the edifying conversation and illuminating thoughts that spring from them are such that I shall feel bound to keep them in my memory and to give you all the reverence and thanks of my grateful heart, the wanderer and the teacher. The time has come for us to go. Most heartily we ask for your prayers upon our journey and upon our companionship. The Elder The God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.